Father, we're gathered before you to, to enter into your story, the story of this universe, the story of our communities, the story you've given us. Help us to think clearly, soberly, and respond in faith and obedience. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The first mass murder on an American university in all of history occurred one kilometer from our church one week before I was scheduled to preach a sermon on this commandment, you shall not murder. On Friday afternoon, November 1, 1991, Gang Lu attended a meeting of the Plasma Research Group at the University of Iowa. He pulled out a 38 revolver, an old type of pistol, and began shooting people in the head. This was so surprising that at first the people there thought it was a Halloween joke. It was, after all, the day after Thanksgiving. Uh, nothing like this had ever happened. Five of the people he shot died. One was left in a wheelchair for life. Then Gang Lu went to his room, shot himself in the head, and died. Shock spread across our small university town. It was normally a peaceful, tolerant kind of place. Some people saw our town as an outpost of civilization and enlightenment in the midst of countless miles of Iowa cornfields. How could this happen? And in a few days, the shock turned into rage. People were very, very angry. Now, in the following week, I studied this commandment and listened to the reactions of people in our community. And then I decided what I was going to preach. I decided to preach a sermon entitled, God Hates Murder More Than You Hate Murder. I still have vivid memories of the intense feelings in our church, but also across the community. Now today, we here do not live in a small town where murder is rare. We live in a global village where murder is the order of the day. When I watch the news in the evening, the question I usually have in mind is who today is claiming to do something good by means of murdering ordinary people? So now, as citizens of a global village, what should we say about this commandment? This is, after all, part of our message to the world in which we live. Now, there's something I think we should note by way of definition. That is, this commandment refers to one individual killing another individual. It is not referring to such things as capital punishment or participation in a just war. Occasionally, believers have read this commandment and think that because of this commandment, they should not, for example, become a police officer or serve their country in the military. But the same Old Testament books that gave us this commandment also show that in very, very carefully limited circumstances, uh, believers could participate in fighting a war or enforcing the law. The biblical understanding of the value of human life should see us, lead us to see every loss of human life as tragic. But perhaps in a few very rare circumstances, uh, someone might have to use force as a police officer. So this is not talking about that. So as, I, as we take a careful look at this commandment, I would like to point out two assumptions and two implications that will help us think about this. The first assumption is that we have a deep, murderous potential inside of us. Or to put it differently, there's a bit of Cain in us, or we could each become Cain if we're not careful. 
this possibility of becoming a murderer is not only something that applies to other people. Each of us could become a murderer. Now, when we look at Cain, we see that his murder of Abel was not the result of a moment of frustration. It was a planned, carefully enacted undertaking. He thought about it. He led his brother out to the fields, away from other family members, away from civilization, where no one would stop him. While listening to the news reports about the murders 27 years ago, it seemed to me that the reporters had a very hard time accepting that someone would go into a room planning to kill people. The reporters seemed to have some understanding for a a reaction in a moment of frustration that someone might go berserk and kill someone. They couldn't fathom the possibility that a well-educated man would make deliberate plans and carry them out with precision. We are perhaps naive about our own nature. We are reluctant to admit that someone so talented with a promising life before him could do something like that. It's too much to confess that we are like Cain. But there it is. Ouch! Feel the pain. That's who we are, like it or not. Now, thinking further about Cain and his story, we should note something that, note that his murder of Abel was connected to his worship. There was something wrong with Cain's worship. Uh, Abel's worship of God was accepted, and everyone knew it. Cain's worship of God was not accepted, and Cain knew it was not accepted. There was something deficient in his worship, and that's what drove him to this act. We might call this religious frustration leading to murder. Now, in recent years, I've studied the problem of religiously motivated violence for my job as a human rights theorist. And there are two paths, two very common paths, by which religion leads to violence. And they are very different, both present in our world today. The first of these pathways to religiously motivated violence is unique to Islam. Within most varieties of Islam, it is difficult for people to be certain they will go to paradise when they die. This uncertainty weighs heavily on the souls of many Muslims. And a few varieties of Muslims resolve the the problem by saying that if you die during a religious war, during a jihad, then you can have certainty of going to paradise. Therefore, there are a few people who plan on a religiously motivated suicide in what they perceive to be a religious war because they're looking for certainty of paradise. Maybe we should call this dysfunctional religion. But another way, pathway of religion to violence in our day is what I would call religious nationalism. This is the claim that to be a good citizen of my state or to have human rights, one must belong to the right religion. And if one does not belong to the right religion, one does not have rights. And such people without rights may be treated inhumanely. Uh, perhaps killed or driven away or turned into slaves. We see this problem, for example, with the Hindu nationalists. Samuel is in our home group, and he sometimes talks about the persecution of Christians in his village, where his family lives, where his home church is. And that persecution in his town in India is caused by this kind of 
Hindu nationalism. The people are saying to themselves and to each other, uh, India is for Hindus, therefore Christians should be killed or driven out. That's religious nationalism. But that's not the only type of religious nationalism we see. Think of the Rohingyas in Myanmar. They were driven out, or many killed, because they are Muslims, most of them are Muslims, and the country is mostly Buddhist. This is Buddhist nationalism. People in Myanmar saying that to be a good citizen of their society, you must be a Buddhist and not be a Muslim. We have to be very careful that we, as Christians, do not promote a kind of Christian nationalism and say that to be a good citizen of our state or our community, you must be a Christian. It would be equally as ugly. But this relationship of religion and violence often comes out at the individual level, not just at the societal level. When people are at peace with God and know they are at peace with God, they almost never become violent. Uh, of course, people, everyone gets angry, even people who are at peace with God. But with, if you have real peace with God, that will overshadow your anger, even if it's righteous anger, and it will shape what you do with your anger. Uh, if you or a friend are very angry, to the point of almost wanting to murder someone, come back to the question of religious frustration. Peace with God by faith in Jesus Christ is possible, and it's possible to know that you have peace with God through Jesus Christ. This is the way to solve the murderous potential inside of us. Now there's a second assumption in this commandment, why it's wrong to kill people not other things. And that is, is that human beings are created in the image of God. The image of God is not so much a thing. The image of God is a relationship. The image of God is the relationship that each person has with God. Even if a person's relationship with God is 100% negative, so that they're not on speaking terms, they know they're enemies of God, yet that relationship is there in a negative way, and that is God's image. Even if a person claims to be an atheist, they're still in an argument with God. And to equip us for this relationship with himself, God gave us certain of our other capacities, such as rationality and morality, creativity, our need for relationships. But they're all things that facilitate the real point of being human. Being made in the image of God is a relationship with God. Now, in connection with this particular commandment, we need to see that the image of God has to do with how God sees the person. Whatever abilities or capacities a person may or may not have at the time, God sees that person as valuable because he's talking with them. Everyone belongs to God and has a specific, specific and personal dignity because God is talking to that person, even if it's a heated argument. So any attack on another person is an attack on someone who's either a friend or enemy of God. And God loves his enemies, so he better not attack his enemies. This is the tie between worship and murder. True worship of God leads to honoring people who are created in his image, who are a little bit like him. When we properly honor another person, God feels himself to be honored because we've honored him through honoring the other person, through treating a person properly. 
False worship dishonors God and also dishonors people who are created in his image. So we, we have to get these both right at the same time, knowing that God, who God is and having a proper relationship with him and recognizing that everyone else is either a friend or an enemy of our God, a God who loves his enemies. Now, it's terribly, terribly important that people of the Bible talk about the image of God because one of the problems, the deep problems of modern philosophy, modern culture, is no one knows why human beings have a special dignity. No one knows where that dignity comes from. And we're the only people around who really have something substantial to say. So let me give you a couple examples from secular atheist philosophy, how there are atheist neighbors are talking about this. Michael Tooley is one of the philosophers today who defends abortion. He writes that the only being who has a right to life is one who has a desire for continued life. And if an entity does not have a desire for continued life, that person has no right. And if someone cannot conceive of the future of their life, they have no right to future life. Now, he not only applies that to animals, he applies that to unborn babies, he applies that to infants who don't yet, can't yet conceive of a future. He also applies that to people who are under dementia and can no longer think about a future for themselves. Peter Singer is one of the leading animal rights philosophers today. Uh, he's been that for generation already. He claims that the capacity to feel pain is what gives an, a being a right not to be assaulted. The key for him is the capacity to experience pain. And he says that most animals experience pain. Think of chimpanzees, or cows, or sheep, or rats, or a dog. They have a capacity to feel pain, too. And so, he says, they have a right to life. And if you don't grant them a life to right, life to right, a uh, life to life, excuse me, equal to that of humans, uh, you are guilty of speciesism. Of course, he's making a comparison with racism. Uh, we, the problem of you like people better if they're of your own race. But he says it's an equal problem if you like people better because they're of the same species. It's a prejudice against other species. So that's the way he talks about these things. Now, the same year that I was studying philosophers such as Thule and Singer, my mother-in-law was dreadfully ill with Alzheimer's disease. She suffered for some seven years with Alzheimer's disease. Uh, during much of that time, she could not talk. She did not know who we were. Uh, we'd come there, and she would either not say anything, or she would confuse uh, my wife with her mother, funny sorts of confusion. And as I was watching my mother-in-law in steep decline, I was thinking about Michael Tooley and Peter Singer, how they would have thought about my mother-in-law and saw the vast gulf between how they thought and how I thought as a Christian. I saw my mother-in-law as still having infinite value because she was still in a dialogue with God, in God's image. Thule or Singer would have said, she's gone. There's no dignity left. You may kill her. 
the non-believing world is struggling to find any reason to believe in human dignity, any good explanation of why people have rights and why we should protect them. You see, if you lose God, you lose human dignity as well. Non-believing writers on the topic of murder tend to either restrict the topic of murder to people who are in good health, or else they apply it to animals too. Everything gets lost. We have to be, talk about our Christian view, our biblical view, that human beings are created in the image of God and live in that image, in that dialogue with God continually. Now, two assumptions. Now, two implications. The first implication is that we must deal with murderous attitudes inside ourselves. In John, excuse me, in Matthew 5, 21, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, something like the idiot, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. Anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, apparently in Jesus' day, there were people who tried to use a, a philosophical trick to avoid the implications of the commandment. They said that the only time is murder is if the person really dies. If you just hurt them seriously, it's not murder. But Jesus says the commandment has always applied, not only to the physical act of murder, but to words and thoughts. Destructive words, angry feelings, in God's view, are a little bit like anger. Now, we must be precise here. It is possible to be angry without sin. Jesus got angry. Sometimes he was very angry. But when we notice what he, was in a, what he was angry about, it was usually at some terrible injustice in his community. It may be that we are angry too seldom or angry about the wrong things. If there are certain circumstances that require anger of us, if we are going to be the right kind of people. But I think most of us know the difference between good anger, righteous anger, and sinful anger. Uh, let me just mention a few indicators of sinful anger. Are, are you angry very often? Well, then it's probably wrong. You get angry without a reason or for a very slight reason, then you have a problem. You stay angry for a long time or bear a grudge against a person that you simply can't forget there's a problem to address. Are you unwilling to forgive? Does anger make you lose your self-control? Do you express your anger in inappropriate ways? As I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking of a taxi driver who once ripped me off, seriously. I still remember him. Obviously, I've got an anger issue with him. <laughs> now, not all anger is sinful, but very often anger is the occasion of sin. So when you're angry, be very careful what you do. If you're angry too much or inappropriately, ask for help. A pastor or a counselor may be uh, crucial for you to find a, a new way of dealing with things. And ask yourself the, the deeper religious issue. Are you really uh, wrestling with God inappropriately? If you are really at peace with God, I think we will have enough peace to be able to deal with our anger appropriately. Remember Cain, his religious frustration drove him to murder. If you are fully aware that you are accepted by God, your anger will usually be manageable. 
But a second implication of this commandment is that we must try to do all we can to protect human life. Now, this commandment, like many of the commandments, is stated negatively. You shall not. But assumes that the reader is intelligent and will figure out, well, what should I do? In this case, it's protect the lives of other people. They're made in God's image. Uh, we just read the story of the Good Samaritan. Uh, I asked for that because that's one of the best stories in the New Testament that illustrates the principle of love your neighbor, protecting the life of your neighbor. The Good Samaritan helped a guy who was not even of his same ethnic group. He was supposed to hate the guy because they were ethnic groups that were supposed to be fighting. He didn't. Uh, He didn't just ignore the situation. He took quite a bit of initiative and spent some time and money helping him. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what we do if we really believe you shall not murder. As for reasons like this, that Christians tend to do certain things that we do and have done over the past. Uh, it's one of the reasons why so many Christians go into health care and into education, because they see that they're helping people very directly. This is why Christians led the way in abolishing the slave trade and slavery 150 years ago and why they should do it again today. This is why Christians had Jew, hid Jews from the Nazis during the World War II. This is why Christians have helped refugees and have set up shelters and rescue missions for the homeless, for alcoholics, for drug addicts. This is why Christians should be concerned about abortion and infanticide. Interesting thing now in a time of hurricanes in the United States. It's widely known, but maybe not discussed enough, how the the emergency aid gets distributed. The government usually pays for it, but it's often churches and Christian organizations that on the local level actually make it work. There we see the wonderful informal but real church-state partnership that it's the Christians who know there's to help a neighbor, so they figure out well, where do we, how do we do that and where will the money come from? The money comes from the government, but the Christians provide much of the manpower. Our faith gives us a way of seeing things, and that way of seeing things leads to action. If we believe God created us in his image, if we believe we're to protect people in his image, that God gave us the Ten Commandments, then we must do what we can to protect other people. There's one recent problem, current problem I would mention. That's in caring for a friend or relative who is ill to the point of death. Uh, Leslie and I just updated our wills a few days ago, and in fact wrote very explicit directives of what should be done in case we are uh, seriously ill and it's not likely to to recover. Very precise instructions what our daughter is supposed to do at that point. And my opinion is this, that um, it's wrong for us to ever take our own life, to do anything that resembles suicide. Uh, But on the other hand, uh, my life belongs to God. And at some point, I have to allow him to take that back. And so therefore, I don't want my children to um, do, go too far in protecting my life, though they'll probably want to do that. The Lord gives life, and the Lord takes it away. Now, my topic this morning is rather gloomy, and I, I apologize for that, but it's really a problem caused by Adam and Eve. But I... 
and they're the first ones to sin. Uh, but I'd like us to remember where I start started, that God hates murder too, far more than we do. Let's go back to Gang Lu, the mass murderer in Iowa City, 27 years ago, and ask the question, did he know that what he was planning to do was wrong, was evil? He was probably not familiar with the Bible, so he had probably never read the story of Cain and Abel, probably had never read the Ten Commandments. He might have known the story of the Good Samaritan, because that's a little more widely known. Did he know that his plans were evil? Well, the answer, I hope you see, is clearly yes and no at the same time. There are important truths that all people know, but would strongly prefer not to know, and therefore they act almost as if they do not know those truths. We can convince ourselves that we don't like a certain truth so long that we, some, we begin to pretend that we don't know. Uh, and it's something like that with the themes of the sermon. Uh, do people without the Bible know something about human dignity? Well, yes, I, I believe they do. Uh, when, you, when we relate to people, we have an entirely different experience than relating to an animal. Uh, my wife and I have had do dogs for a long time. Don't have them right now. But it's an entirely different experience to talk to my dog than to talk to one of my kids. Everyone knows that. We have an entirely different experience. So, so yes, people know something about the dignity of other people. It's somehow direct knowledge. Uh, do we know that we're sinful? Well, uh, modern philosophy and culture for the last 350 years since the Enlightenment has been trying its best to say no, that we're not sinful, and yet people keep realizing that they are. And if you read the newspapers, one of the first things you realize is that our neighbors are pretty awful. Uh, it's not only me. It's not only me that's pretty awful sometimes. It's our neighbors, too. Uh, you could probably prove the doctrine of sin from reading the newspaper, and our neighbors sort of know that, even though they don't want to talk about their sinfulness. Uh, did this man, this murderer, know that murder itself is wrong? Well, I, I think probably yes. Uh, there are certain things that everyone knows is wrong, even if they claim not to know, and murder is one of those things. Uh, it's what people used to call the natural moral law, that people know it's naturally there, regardless, even if you don't know where that law came from, and a person should know it naturally, even if some people don't. So yes, people do know many of the principles in the, that I've talked about in my sermon today, but they would probably sometimes prefer not to know them. So what does that mean for us? Well, we need to be confident when we talk about these things. This isn't silly nonsense that we're dealing with here in these themes in the Bible. This is important stuff. We should be confident in talking about it, and it will have a kind of an echo in the minds of other people. You know, you've probably had a dream, and you woke up the next morning, and you had some vague feelings about that dream, but you couldn't quite identify them. They might have been good feelings, or they might have been bad feelings. Bad feelings if the dream was a nightmare, good feelings if it was a nice dream, but it was vaguely there, but you couldn't quite put your finger on what you knew. That's how our neighbors are, without people without the Bible, in relationship to these truths that we've talked about this morning. 
They, they sort of know, but it's like a dream they have forgotten. So I would encourage us to be really confident in talking about these things. Uh, it's urgent. People need it. And these themes find an echo in the minds and the hearts of other people. And that then makes, gives us a credible situation for explaining the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it's by being aware of being loved and accepted by God that we overcome the religious frustration that drives us to the worst things we do. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the tremendous privilege of knowing you. That we do not have to be like Cain, running from you. We know that you've come to us. You've given us your grace in Jesus Christ. And now we can be at peace with you. And, oh, Lord, I pray that that peace with you that we know about, that we feel, would flow over into all our relationships and all that we say and do. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.